0: Hello, Edgar.
1: Hello, Karthwar. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Well, I'm okay. I'm. Um... That's not that very convincing. <laughs> well, I'm, um, I'm. I mean, I'm doing okay. I mean, I
0: compared to so many people, I think I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. I don't want to complain on, about that.
1: Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess I'm uh, looking forward to the vaccine being available to everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the news are that I think the UK is going to start vaccination. That raises a lot of questions in terms of our fantasies and fears. Do you want to expand on that? There is now this fantasy of a savior that takes the form of a vaccine. Mm -hmm. People are longing to go back to quote-unquote some sense of normalcy but reality is that vaccination will take a long period and On the other hand, we don't know the long-term effects of COVID and we don't know the long-term effects or side effects of the vaccine. We should be grounded in, in reality and hoping for the best. Yeah, and it's difficult.
0: There is a wishful thinking component that is very strong.
1: Yes, of course. I
0: think we are, as uh, a whole, certainly all uh, kind of tired of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's not like our years of analysis is going to help us deal with the virus uh, any better. So we are subject to similar fears and hopes in our patients. Yeah, we might have more ground to think uh, about them maybe than some of them do, but still, it's difficult to step aside as much as we can on other Issues, or we think we can at least on other issues.
1: Yeah, being immersed in the same reality makes it difficult to unpack what are my fears and my fantasies and the fears and fantasies of the patient.
0: Already the announcement of the vaccine is uh, creating a very um, damageable side effect that people magically believe that the vaccine is already widely available.
1: Yes, and it's not.
0: And it's it's not going to be for some time.
1: Yes, correct.
0: I think Fossi was mentioning for the US that it should be available for the public at large at the beginning of the second quarter of the year, 2021, which would mean uh, April. Mm -hmm. It's not so far, but we're not there yet.
1: And we are riding the second wave in the United States. So this is still very scary.
0: Yeah, people should uh, keep paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. In any way, so today the podcast is not going to be... About uh, COVID-19?: No, it's actually going to be uh, an interview that I recorded with Lee Jenkins, who's um, one of my supervisors. In February of this year, actually, there will be two issues of the discussions on psycholysis Mhm. The first one that we are going to listen to today focuses especially on Lee's personal life and then slowly goes into his professional life and the question of racism and racism is approached uh, mostly at the end of the interview. I think it's... a uh, I really like the interview. You listened to it already, uh, Edgar. What what did you think about it?
1: I was not present when the recording happened, and I haven't had the pleasure of listening to Lee before. I appreciated his gentle demeanor that I experienced in his voice. I experienced him to be nuanced in his approach to psychoanalysis, to race, which is refreshing in this time of polarization that we are living right now. I'm very happy about the recording, and I hope the audience received it with the same enthusiasm that I had.
0: And at the beginning of the last podcast on race and racism, you and I mentioned that there might be a follow-up podcast, but we didn't receive any reaction. No. I have to say I was a bit surprised, but uh, I don't know exactly what to think about it. Maybe uh, maybe we covered the subject and the theme so well that uh, nothing had to be said. Um,
1: Which is sure, but (laughs) that seems to to be a fantasy. Is it really? Which is
0: unlikely. We really want to encourage our listener to challenge us on any issue, and uh, this one is no exception, mm-hmm. and to send us questions, comments, uh, reaction. There are so many other things to say about questions of race and racism in psychoanalysis. It's really too bad to shy away from expressing one opinion and try to engage each other in a discussion on that matter.
1: Now, looking forward, there's going to be a second installment of uh, the interview with Lee Jenkins is that right yes so so there will be an expansion on the theme of race and racism in that podcast
0: as a second interview I mean that will come in a month will be really focused on race and racism and then maybe if we have reactions uh, from our listeners uh, we will have uh, and maybe not maybe we will just uh, by ourselves uh, produce mm-hmm. the follow-up podcast on that anyway It's a very interesting theme. Uh, Lee is a very talented and very experienced clinician. I really
1: hope you will enjoy listening to him. And uh, I guess that's it. So we're open to listen to your questions and comments on the podcast. You can reach us at discussions on psychoanalysis
0: at pm.me. Or you can go on the Facebook group, Twitter account, or SoundCloud account. And we'll try to get back to you as fast as we can. We promise. Until then, welcome to
1: discussions, discussions. on psychoanalysis.
0: Hello, Lee. Hi, Gray. How are you doing today?
2: I'm calming down a little bit. I think I'll be okay.
0: Hi, everybody. So today I will be interviewing Lee Jenkins, who is a psychoanalyst practicing in New York, Upper West Side, and who also happens to be one of my supervisors. The interview will be structured around four main themes. The first will be questions on the personal level to get a better sense of who Lee is. Then questions about his psychoanalytic training, his experience as a practicing psychoanalyst, and finally on psychoanalysis and racism. Let's start with personal questions, Lee. I just referred to you as a psychoanalyst.
2: Do you refer to yourself as a psychoanalyst? I do refer to myself as a psychoanalyst, yes. But sometimes I I just use the generic term psychotherapist depending on whom I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I certainly think of myself as a psychoanalyst, and that's the kind of work I do. We're talking about emphasizing the particular kind of depth that psychoanalysts do, and I think the emphasizing the intimacy of the relationship the psychoanalysts have with their people. It's an interaction, and I get to be impacted by the person's heart and mind and soul even. And he gets a glimpse of what I'm like in that regard.
0: If I understand correctly, being a psychoanalyst means something specific in terms of the depth of the connection.
2: Absolutely. The depth of the connection, interaction, I want to emphasize again the intimacy of it. Mm -hmm. This is probably one of the few disciplines where the practitioner is personally involved in interacting with the patient. And part of his personality is also instrumental and the the way the therapy goes, what sort of person he is, Mm -hmm. what is brought out of him, Mm -hmm. what the depth is of his understanding of himself, to what extent he's not afraid to experience himself and let others see him. I mean, we get trained to have self-understanding and to be revealed, and I think that's unique.
0: So it's not just a connection to our patients, but also to ourselves.
2: Yes, that's a way to put that. And they make that connection we have with ourselves, something that they connect to that facilitates their therapeutic experience. So, Lee, you're practicing in New York. Are you from New York? I'm not originally, no. I'm from Tallahassee, Florida, down in the south. I keep thinking about that song Tallahassee Lassie that everybody used to know. I didn't know whether it was based on anything going on in Tallahassee or not. My parents were Blacks, as I am. And there's a contrasting, I guess, accomplishment in my family, my mother's side and my father's side. My mother came from the conventional view of uh, Blacks at that time. They were farmers Mm -hmm. and self-sufficient and strong-minded people. From Tallahassee, From that area. Okay. Um, My father moved to Tallahassee to be close to Florida A&M University, which was at that time a black uh, institution, which is now integrated, of course. And my uh, father's uh, people were um, educated and accomplished. My father's father was a professor of uh, mathematics. Later, my grandfather served as a school principal. And I guess I should say that both my parents were college graduates. My mother was an elementary school teacher, then a housewife, and my father was a contractor who built houses. And then he became a manager in an insurance company, and that's what he did most of his life when I was a child.
0: Did you always practice psychoanalysis, or did you do something before that?
2: I was a professor of English for 32 years. When I thought about what I wanted to do, I went to Fisk University, a historical black institution, to study philosophy. And I got a B.A. in that. Then I went to the University of Iowa, the writer's workshop there, and in the theater arts department, and I wrote plays. I was thinking about being a playwright. And then uh, I left there and I did some uh, teaching in the South and uh, returned to further graduate study and I got a doctorate in English and comparative literature from Columbia. And I can think about the time when it occurred to me after I got my doctorate, there's one more thing I wanted to do Mm -hmm. or needed to do. And that was to maybe explore myself. I wasn't thinking of psychiatry or anything like that. It seemed to me that being a clinical psychologist or a psychoanalyst would be the thing to do, you know, because I, there was emotional dysfunction in my family, mm-hmm. as often is the case with psychoanalysts. Yeah, So I needed to understand myself better, and I wanted to be uh, helpful to people uh, exploring conflicts that I have, and I know that they have So that was the main incentive thing that was propelling me to study. And I couldn't go back into a clinical psychology program because I was already working full-time as an English professor. Mm -hmm. So I thought of psychoanalysis, and I applied to NPAP and liked the program and was accepted there. Do you find
0: that sometimes what you used to do and what you're doing now, they overlap, or you feel like it's completely separate? What's your experience of it? No, they overlap, of course.
2: Mm-hmm. What does an English professor do? I mean, we do a lot of reading of it's literature texts. And the main thing is to understanding the trajectory of characterization. And people can look at that, identify with the characters, understand, see a story being told similar to their own.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Naturally, we do that in psychoanalysis, where we deconstruct the text, that is, the story of somebody's life, and uh, we begin to make uh, identifications with uh, things that are going on in there. It's a narrative thing that's important, understanding what the bases are of human behavior and uh, functioning. You can see a writer talking about that and demonstrating it in action. And in psychoanalysis, what do we do? We get into it. We deconstruct it. We understand the sources of the conflicts. Mm. And I think that's mainly how they might be similar and overlap.
0: Now we are going to move to your experience during your psychoanalytic training.
2: Yeah. So Lee, could you tell us when
0: you started your training as a psychoanalyst?
2: Probably sometimes around my mother's death. I think that was like 1975, 76. Mm -hmm. She died in 1976. I needed to get a depth of understanding of me. Yeah. So that's what led me to psychiatric training. How was training at the time? It was tough going for me. I live up in the upper west side of Manhattan, and I had to go down to the village, I think, to see my uh, therapist three times a week. And it was, you know, tough. Then the expenditures of time, of money, and effort involved in doing it, the necessity of seeing people at the same time, seeing my supervisor, my analyst, going to classes at the same time that I was teaching a full load as a uh, professor. So the only way I could do that was the way NPP was able to accommodate me Mm -hmm. by, what, letting me take a few classes a semester, I oh, won, and uh, I go along at my own rate. So that's mainly what was so good about going to NPAP.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You've been around so for quite a while at NPAP, and you've seen things change. Like, what, Could you tell us something about how you experienced this particular training institute and maybe others' uh, change through time since you started your training and now? <laughs> what, do you have anything to say about it?
2: Yeah, we are much more sensitive to uh, changes in society. Mm -hmm. We're talking about instances of a kind of inequity that exists, you know, social class differences regarding attitudes toward equality with women and minorities. I think institutes are becoming more aware of the need to address those things. Mm -hmm. To the extent that we do have classes for it is still a problematic thing, but everybody now is aware of the need to look at this. So I think that's a change, and there may be a change in the attitudes institutes have trying to make the students a little bit more involved in the processes of their own education and uh, being consulted to some degree. I mean, a lot of people disagree with that, but it certainly is different now from what it was 30 years ago, I I would say. What do you mean? Then you were supposed to come and be told what to do and how to think and how to behave, and that was that. Whereas now there's a little bit more flexibility in understanding these trainees who nevertheless, what, your colleagues. Mm-hmm. You have a mutual respect for them. I think more so now, the possibility of that more so now than then.
0: There are more possibilities today. It doesn't mean that from um, someone who was in training not so long ago, there's still a sense that this, what I would call a, this kind of authoritarian uh, okay. view yeah. is still present. But I, I can hear how it's not, it's probably not as everywhere as it used to be.
2: It's for the uh, people in charge who recognize the limitations of their own authority. Being a psychoanalyst sometimes elevates people's estimation of themselves as know-it-alls, they know everything, Mm -hmm. and they cannot be told, even by their colleagues. And I think maybe there's a greater sensitivity Mm -hmm. to to that issue.
0: So you started your training in the 70s. How do you think people's perceptions of you influenced Mm -hmm. your training?
2: In the usual way. I mean, being a black person in this society means that I'm highly sensitive to questions of uh, my adequacy, my capacity to perform, being seen as on par with that of everybody else. And not all the time am I persuaded that people think that. Or, you know, this is a high degree of um, paranoia that somebody like me might have and wondering whether people do see me. I mean, they may think that I've got some problems, Mm -hmm. just like everybody does. But uh, the way it's viewed, you know, it may be a circumstantial situation for regular folks. And how they might view a black person is it's a personal thing and there's something wrong with him as opposed to simply accepting the fact that these things happen to anybody. Difficulties encountered um, that have to be overcome is not a reflection of some kind of personal feeling in in the individual. As, say, a white person might think, it's just something circumstantial that's happening to me, and I can deal with it, and I'll overcome it. But it's got little to do with me personally. Whereas I think the black person is viewed as somebody carrying a fault or failing and that he is personally responsible for whatever happens to him rather than that we have good luck and bad luck. Things happen and, you know, we can overcome them.
0: And how do you think that played into your training, those kind of projections and expectations?
2: Well, not any, any egregious way because mm-hmm. people were kind of considerate uh, of me. And I do not recall being uh, mistreated.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: but that i'm just saying that that we live in a a society that the racist attitudes are prevalent so people aren't all the time aware how they may have misgivings about somebody uh, and they give expression to them without realizing they're doing that the sensitivity a black person might have is to pick up on those things and uh, maybe sometimes blow them out of proportion
0: that's how it interfered in your
2: training sometimes yeah. yeah, you could be in a class and a discussion is going on and you can make a presentation, an offering of some ideas. They may be well-received, they may not. They may be looked upon as a kind of a personal rambling on the part of that individual without his focusing on the relevant issue. Mm. When he's addressing the relevant issue, but it may not all the time be received. Uh, I would say something like that.
0: I see. It certainly had an influence on how you connected with psychoanalysis.
2: Well... It had to do with recognizing a lot of what we do, we're not aware of the unconscious uh, sources involved in what we think and say. So that being involved in any kind of uh, discipline that is consciously dealing with what it is that's unconsciously revealed in what you do is a miraculous thing. So yeah, that drew me to uh, taking the unconscious processes seriously. Mm-hmm. and wondering how it is that we do so much in our lives without realizing what the deep implications are and motives are, or why are we behaving the way we are? Sure, that would certainly draw me to uh, psychoanalytic thinking.
0: Psychoanalysis was a vessel or a tool to express one part of oneself, to be able to connect with parts of oneself that maybe were not as um, recognized by other disciplines.
2: Yes, that it takes the unconscious processes seriously Mm -hmm. in a way that other disciplines might not. And that it views unconscious thinking as central to motivation. That applies across the board all the time. In every aspect of life. And I think that's what's so distinctive, distinguishing about psychoanalysis, that it takes that, it looks at that, why it is, and it has a methodology, a way of trying to help us overcome those parts of that unconscious process that are hurtful and undermining and um, interfere with our best functioning. So it became emerged from being ensnared by things we can't even understand, how they limit us. Um, and begin to have an understanding of that and move past it. That's a miraculous thing.
0: When I was Milo chair, the president of the student body at NPAP, uh, a question that would come very often was how do we attract more students, candidates from what we call minorities? Mm usually visible minorities because we have some minorities in um, like foreign students uh, in uh, in NPP but that's not really the concern that was addressed so from your experience how do you understand that psychosis in the US at least it does not seem to attract many People from minorities and especially in the U.S., black Americans?
2: Well, I think it doesn't attract white people that frequently either. The thing is that any discipline that focuses on what? Pain and suffering and the way in which we've been injured and, you know, intruded upon and traumatized is the meat and potatoes of what we're looking at. Uh, it's a painful process to experience, and I think black people already uh, have enough pain to deal with. For that reason alone, they might not be attracted to it. And then, you know, that's the idea of what's racist about the way we interact means that they have a question of issue of not being able to trust. So they'd have to have teachers and supervisors, analysts, they can believe in, have faith in, and that uh, will be accepted by uh, I think that has something to do with it. Maybe another thing is the way that black like people normally don't like to be exposed to others regarding their concerns, their, their pain and anguish, their ways of living that others may look down on. So that, uh, I think that's another factor involved in it. And, you know, it's just a difficult thing to undergo. You need time and money. That's an issue for everybody who trains. And I think it would be particularly so for, for many blacks.
0: So if you're poor, it's especially
2: well, difficult to sure. be trained. There's not that much opportunity to be subsidized in psycholytic institutes. That's mostly where you get trained as a psychoanalyst. If you went into a clinical psychology program or something, you, know, you could become a therapist. Uh, you might even get, in a way, trained uh, psych- some psychoanalytic training too, but there's a possibility that you would get some money to do that, mm. like you would not most of the time in a psychoanalytic institute.
0: Yeah, so you would need a from what I'm hearing and uh, if we wanted um, more people from minorities and for poor area we would need a lot more endeavor in terms of um, creating a safer place or um, yeah. for whatever it could mean for different people and also financial incentives for people who can't really afford yeah. uh, even if NPAP is clearly one of the most affordable training institute I mean at the time we are recording at least still uh, I remember back when I was my teacher, I did a, a little math and trying to um, adds up all the cost and uh, it's easily uh, around uh, the $50,000 at the end even if you start earning some money it's you really need other sources of income if you want to start training inside to become a psychologist so
2: many of the uh, people in training at least uh, came in with me and I noticed today, too, already have uh, coming from some other uh, profession that helps them do this. It's not just that they're all the time relying on their earnings as a therapist to live. I think, you know, that's part of the situation, too. And so most likely many of the white people doing it would already have that prospect of having more than one way to earn uh, money in contrast to many uh, black people who wouldn't.
0: Yeah especially for people who are listening to us uh, from outside of the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., there's a strong correlation between being black and being poor it's because of its history of slavery.
2: Everywhere else, too.
0: What I mean is that we, we have people who are listening to us from mostly from uh, the U.S., but from other countries, and they might not hear what we're saying as obviously as okay. we do uh, when we talk about it, just to reframe a little bit of the context. But I'm sure once it's done, people will not be so surprised uh, about mm-hmm. uh, what we're stating. Okay, do you have anything else to add?
2: Oh, I'm sure there are lots of things um, that I've forgotten to talk about, but they may occur to me as we go along.
0: Now, let's move to questions about your practice as a psychoanalyst. Lee, do you think
2: that you could practice in
0: Tallahassee, Florida, the same way you are currently practicing in New York?
2: Actually, I do now. I mean, when I grew up, Tallahassee was probably, uh, I guess, 30,000 people. That must be two or 300,000. So that there would be a large enough contingent of black people there, I think, who would be interested now in coming to see a therapist. Naturally, they would want to see a black one. At least initially, that's the feeling people would have. It's a kind of progressive place. I mean, race relations among both for black and white people would not be so problematic as it can be elsewhere. So, I believe that i would I would probably be successful there
0: when I was training in the u s some instructor mentioned how they felt like outside of New York people were less interested in the psychonetic kind of work do Would you agree with that
2: uh probably, mm-hmm. but I mean that's probably the case outside of New York, anywhere else in this country except on the uh, the coasts. I don't know what it might be in California, but I imagine it would be something similar to what it is. On the East Coast. but I'm talking about a place where there's a possibility of, what, less, you know, reactionary thinking. And that would be the case in Tallahassee, I imagine. Mm -hmm. It's the capital of the state. There are reasons for it to be socially progressive in its outlook because of the presence of those universities there.
0: So people might be curious about the psychoanalytic process.
2: Oh, I think they would be. They would have the influence of the universities there to bring it about. And the people who move down there to work at those places already have a greater likelihood to have interest in those things. So I don't think I would have that much trouble in Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you moved out of, say, the perimeter of a place like that, 50 miles away in the surrounding area, the thinking would be different. Yeah, yeah. I see. I mean, even when I grew up, and you know, in the 1950s and 60s, there, it was comparatively speaking, <laughs> for for a southern city, progressive. Mm-hmm. I was never uh, mistreated in some outright way mm-hmm. by uh, people exposed to you know really harsh, racist uh, subjugation, hurtful things. Though you know, there's always that possibility, but it's it's just as easily possible for that to occur walking down uh, Broadway uh-huh. in, in New York. Okay. Since you started
0: practicing psychoanalysis, do you think you changed the way you practice in your own office?
2: Pretty much the same. Naturally, I, when I started out, I wasn't working as hard. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, I've been retired from my job as a teacher for 10 years now, and I have a pension, which allows me to not be so concerned about, you know, making a lot of money as a therapist. So I see a lot of people, many of whom don't have much money or they have uh, insurance, and I can afford to do that. That has changed, and I see sometimes 10 people a day, Monday through Thursday. I'm still kind of an intersubjective kind of therapist that I always was. That hasn't changed. I guess what's really changed for me maybe is recognizing how hard it is for change to occur and that one has to have way more patience about it and not think that somehow the patient doesn't change as radically and as soon as you want, that it somehow reflects uh, your own inadequacy as as a practitioner. I really think that one has to be really sensitive to that question. If you've got a real good alliance going and it's beginning to uh, matter to the uh, patient to have you, your understanding of him and your experience in, in his exploring the, the, the pain he's got, he is committed to making some sort of change occur. But it's on him to do it. Naturally, it's facilitated to a great degree by how the two you interact. It doesn't depend on what you do entirely as a measure of how he, whether he succeeds in change. And I think that that should be appreciated more than I believe it is. Mm-hmm. That The patience has to be involved uh, all the time. Understanding that you can't uh, make that kind of internal shift. That's why we need five or six years to do it. So to sit tight and to continue to be the, the good therapist you are. You empathic, you understanding, you have insight. Are uh, you unafraid of letting yourself be seen by the patient? Will bring about something different from what it was when you came in there.
0: How do you think people's perception of you influenced or still do influence your practice, the way you practice? <laughs> we look like something, and people see something in what they look at.
2: Well, people first look at my profile. Yeah. And they expect somebody who's accomplished and experienced and uh, polished with understanding. Mm -hmm. And naturally, I try to live up to that. They're expecting, makes me work harder, draws out of me uh, the need, you know, to give them all I got. And I think they appreciate that. Their perception might be of me is varied. I'm thinking now of somebody who is probably a Ukrainian woman who comes and concerned about how her daughter is in love with a guy from the Caribbean. And she cannot understand this. And she comes to see a black therapist that I hope maybe I can understand it and speak to her about why it is and help her to either know what to do to discourage her or possibly even accept it. So then I let her understand a little bit about it's her attitude toward the child and how she's raised her and true to the punter and it controlled her in every way. So she's acting out some kind of desire to what, be free. But it turns out that maybe she and the Caribbean guy have a lot in common, you know, and they might be good for each other. And this is startling to the woman. She comes back a few times to talk about this. So I guess I can be used for many things not just as a therapist, I can provide understanding to people and they come and consult me. As if this woman perceived
0: you as a bridge between someone she could relate to and some kind of foreign entity. Yes. Because you're not from the Caribbean.
2: Nevertheless, she lumps black people together and black enough to, to qualify as a quote, the prototypal black person, she doesn't see any distinction there.
0: From a psychotic point of view, you would represent something of a bridge. Oh, sure. An imago that could uh, yeah. help her create symbolic meanings.
2: <laughs> Maybe. First, this is a absolute literalism. So, since you're black, you understand what it means to be black and why the guy might be interested in her white daughter. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. Mm-hmm. All right. So I explained something about what he's interested in and being motivated by the same kind of things you would be and choosing a partner with whom you feel compatible and you can share things and uh, have a life together. She cannot imagine that that could be the case between her daughter and this man. Mm-hmm. So I do form that bridge and understanding. She understands me is somebody representative of a, an authority figure she respects and that I can speak to her in a way that she can accept so that she takes seriously what I tell her. I guess that was amazing to me too that she could just want to come in and speak to me to understand what's happening. I don't need therapy. She doesn't need therapy. But can you tell me why this is happening? Mm-hmm. So, all right, I do. And uh, she accepts it. That's something a therapist can do without all the time doing therapy. Naturally, if you get people coming. You make them understand that maybe there's some things about yourself you want to explore too.
0: Going back to your um, previous profession... As a English professor, do you use what you learned there, what you got there, in your practice? Does it come back in the way maybe you understand patients, then you understand situations yourself?
2: Well, it's just the the usual way to talk about how is character, oneself, one selfhood revealed, and you can see it revealed in a story or a poem. And you know you're not personally engaged in it as such; it's a vicarious experience. But it does bring out something in you. You have didn't recognize Uh, and you're fascinated just to see what it's like what human behavior is like what it's like to be like that Mm -hmm. naturally therapy is a carrying over of the fascination with character fascination with the life story how did it get to be like that Uh, an artist will explain something about how it is but, you know, it's not his job to say it happened because in the way that the therapist might say, you know, the reason why you have uh, suppressed anger is it was hard to give expression to it to somebody you love you, whose reaction you were afraid of. The writer might imply that and the therapy, we get into a discussion and understanding of how that could be. So I just think there's a natural interaction in that way. Then I might actually use works of art, stories. Mm-hmm. I think with black people, I often use, uh, not often, but enough, I've used the uh, August Wilson's play, Fences, where you get a sense of what happens to a black person who's been subjected to, you know, racist oppression and lost his opportunity. It had it taken away from him to for self, the kind of self-realization he, he wanted. And it was unfairly done. And so he's full of bitterness and he, he might even, you know, resent the chances that his own children have to avoid that sort of thing and succeed because he can't get over the rage he's got about how he was deprived of it. And it can contaminate even his love for his children, you know, that nobody loved me, gave me the consideration. And it's interesting how, you know, oppression in life reflects the deeper sense of being deprived that one has already Emerge from one's upbringing with and see it reinforced all over the place and attitudes taught you that deprive you on the basis of race as racism might and how this stuff is so poisonous and infecting the ways sometimes black parents relate to their children or to each other
0: could i say that you are using your um, knowledge in english literature to sometimes interweave um people's personal experience within a cultural context
2: Yeah, well, that's the way to to put it. It makes it more immediate, obviously. If you see a picture, you go to a movie even, Mm. you see something you can recognize. It might even be cathartic in the way that you can give a release to what's been pinned up in you without realizing how important it was for you to have your mistreatment seen. Mm. So it could be a great relief to uh, have a patient see somebody else suffering in the same way that he can recognize and accept. Oh, and by the way, you know, this is a deep question. The similarity of cultural experience or racial experience Is a big one for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't know all the time whether it's true that the only way we can be understood is by people who share a, a social, cultural, racial background that we do. You know, we all share an unconscious mind. And I think that's the fundamental basis of whatever it is we got in common as humans. You know, that's the repository of all the hopes, fears, wishes, desires, frustrations, rage things that enrages. And we can see how others are motivated by things they don't understand and how they're in the grip of, and they can't shake it off, and they say things opposite from what they intend. That's the way we share that basic process of being flawed humans. And I think sitting with a patient as a therapist might And having this kind of thing, the unconscious processes, stir it up is what facilitates a kind of uh, alliance. I mean, you understand why I can be so enraged. Yes, I do. Because I, too, know something about that. Or how I'm afraid to give expressions to uh, loving somebody because I don't want to appear to be weak or diminished. Yes, I do. Because this is what it's like to be human. Fundamental place where that sort of thing is experienced is the unconscious interaction we got. I mean, it's like saying, how do you recognize denial and rationalization? I mean, we all seem pretty certain that we can because I think it's something about how unconsciously we know we all do it. You know, we can talk about how it got to be and how it's a kind of a way to avoid confronting something in therapy. But in life, everybody knows that we, we, some things we can deal with, so we've got to find a way to avoid it. I mean, that's something that's humanly shared in, in every way by everybody. The wonderful thing about what psychoanalysis affords us is to explore it. And the, the mind and the heart of the therapist is involved, are all involved in that exploration as well as your immediate concern about exploring it with the uh, patient. I was just thinking about the ways in which, you know, just we think that only people of our own uh, cultural or social or racial identification are, are people who can understand us the best. Mm-hmm. They may have a readiness to understand us, something unconsciously recognized that they share. But even deeper than that is, uh, I'm saying, the uh, basis for our human similarity, which is a thing that's reflected in the unconscious processes we all share. We all engage in the same kind of denial and rationalization. I use those terms often enough because they are so frequently used in the way that uh, we hide from the truth or we uh, find ways to deflect it. I think is fascinating we think we can always recognize when somebody is engaging in rationalization or denial because we share something basic with each other regarding how we use those mechanisms and I think that's all that sort of thing is what comes out is what share what's shared, between the uh, the patient and the, and the therapist and psychoanalysis. Now, I was saying also, people come with all kinds of hidden biases to uh, see me, and I just want to say a little bit about some of it. You know, difficulty of identifying with me as a black person is involved when people nevertheless come, and they and they say to their friends, "So why are you seeing uh, Jenkins?" Oh, uh, well, he's, uh, he's black, but he's good. But they have to put it that way rather than say because he's good. Yeah. But that uh, they are sensitive to the question of they're still coming to see a black person.
1: Hmm.
2: Not that they're coming to see a person who happens to be black who can understand them just like a white person might. Some people think that's an impossibility just like many black people think that the white person could never understand them (laughs) like a black person can. I think I should mention something, too, about how it goes often with the many white women that come to see me. And I think some of them kind of imagine on occasion that I will be more empathic and accepting of them sometimes than a white man might. And why do you think that? I think that because they kind of indicate we got a thing in common as a man and a woman in which uh, there's a expected uh, way to be accepted and understood because I'm black and nicer and uh, not so harsh and controlling. They don't say that, but I get the impression that that's how they feel. And I think that plays out after we discuss it after a year or two or so that it comes out sometimes that yeah and they did think that maybe I would be more accepting because I've been subjected to the people that made me feel unacceptable so I would know something about what it means to feel like that Mm -hmm. and they would think that I would therefore be in a more readily able to extend to them the same kind of understanding that they don't feel that they can get often from white men but also, that might mean too. There's an unconscious expectation, you know, that I might not be as demanding of them or as rigorous as they imagine a white man might be.
0: They imagine that the white man cannot have empathy for people who are subjected to some kind of oppression, and that you would be.
2: Yes, that we are somehow victims who understand something about being controlled. Mm. That would give me a degree of sympathy for how they feel. But after all, they forget that I'm also a man, but I'm exempted from mistreating them in the way they might expect a white man to do.
0: So again, you act as some kind of bridge, your representation that that might allow some people to feel that they can connect with something foreign to them.
2: Yeah, that might be the case sometimes. Mm-hmm. This is a way in which they can experience degree of vulnerability, maybe, and that it can be experienced without feeling diminished or demeaned, but that the way in which they want to facilitate experiencing it means there's something missing or lacking in me that, contradictorily enough, they might respect in the white man as well as fear. But they want first to be accepted. But the condition of the acceptance involves some notion of my own diminishment. It's the diminishment they feel that we might want to get into and discuss. I see. And there are other things about that as well. There's often the situation in which I see it emerges after a while, that white men or white women might come to see me as a result of an unconscious memory of the nurturing they received from a black nanny or a black caretaker. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're conscious of this, and they imagine they'll receive some more of that same kind of nurturing that they miss, and so on. So they're looking to satisfy this need through connecting with a uh, black therapist. Even though I'm a man and not something like the nanny, it's just the idea that both of us being black means that we have that capacity to maybe be uh, more caring or capable of loving them in the way they weren't always convinced that they could get elsewhere. One other thing is simply that these are people who come to see me in a city like New York, come from varied backgrounds, and they are interested in many things that normally they wouldn't be exposed to. Many of them are sophisticated, cultivated people, and they recognize that things of interest, things that they normally never encounter in their daily lives, are available to them, like going to see a uh, black psychoanalyst. And so they come just to see what that experience would be, not just uh, as a result of satisfying some sort of curiosity, but as a kind of intellectual exploration, you could almost say, and to put themselves in a place where they are exposed to something that they never expected. And I think that's one of the motives. White people come to see me as well. This is a therapist they might take some pleasure in, in seeing, and they expect a beneficial therapeutic experience. But they also want to explore those of themselves that have been forbidden and off-limits. So here's an opportunity to do this. But I'm never certain about all that. Mm-hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with the fear we have of not being imaginative enough. I keep in my office a picture, there it is right there, of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. who I think is the most imaginative human in literary terms. He knows nothing about the gallery of people he created as such, but he can imagine them. And he had the courage to follow his imagination. And I look upon him, in a sense, as a kind of guide to me. I believe there's nothing that cannot be imagined, but you you have to be willing to be exposed to it. And I think that's the task of uh, the challenge, even, of a good psychoanalyst is is not to be afraid to imagine how you are going to be seen by your patient when you when he sees that you don't understand what he 's talking about either mm-hmm. well of course you wouldn't necessarily, but in time it will emerge you know it's like those kind of interpretations that come when you wait for them. And before you realize what you were saying, you find yourself seeing it because it came right out of the unconscious process you're sharing with that patient rather than the kind of top-down interpretation. I am thinking that I should say this, therefore I say it, but it's not informed by the depth of the feeling and the interaction you've got. I think there's a, a world of difference between those two approaches. Mm-hmm. But I, I was still looking at this question of differences between even black people might look at me and, and say, well, are you, are you socially the same as I am? Are you ethnically the same as I am? Can you therefore understand me? But anyway, I mean, people with those, uh, whatever the attitudes are, even the racist attitudes, you know, I want to get to understanding what's the the causes of the hurt and the pain, even the racist has that makes him insist on finding ways to fault somebody else and find raise himself above somebody else to make himself feel good. And I think that his recognition of my understanding this, letting him express freely enough his resentments about things, makes for the kind of alliance that begins to break down the differences between us. So even he might not want to continue to be alone all the time and to uh, find an ally in this black therapist. But I have to be open to uh, that possibility myself.
0: Well, I guess this is um, a bridge between this section and the last thing we are going to talk about, which will be psychoanalysis and racism. So this is it for today. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Lee Jenkins and that you will listen to the following podcast where we address the question of race and racism in a
1: deeper way. Again, we want to remind you that you can contact us through our Facebook page, Twitter, SoundCloud, or our email address, which is discussions on
0: psychoanalysis at pm.me. And if you like the podcast, maybe you liked it if you're listening to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Give us five stars five on stars. iTunes.
1: Yep. Thank you. See you next Thank month. You. Until then, bye bye.